everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are watching Moonraker. James Bond investigates the mid-air theft of a space shuttle and discovers a plot to commit global genocide. <laughs> Just global genocide. Mm-hmm. So, how's it going? I Bond in space. Okay, I love the concept of Bond in space. The actuality is garbage. I gotta hand it to them on this one, okay? They swung for the fences. Fair. They struck out pretty much, and when they did hit the ball, it was like a weak fly into the middle infield, but you know. Okay, if I had not seen 2001... I probably wouldn't be as harsh about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be as much like, oh, fuck this, stupid. But, you know, a decade earlier, somebody had created groundbreaking ideas of how to make space look. No, like we were watching this and I was like, when did this come out? 1979. And when did 2001 come out? 1968. Exactly. So it was just like, oh, that's why I'm annoyed. Uh Uh-huh. And... You also have to factor in that it came out in 68, but they were filming that stuff as early as 64 for 2001. Like, if you had told me this movie came out, like, two years after that, okay, like, it's just not in the budget. It's not in the plan. But 10 years? No. Sorry. Speaking of the budget. Mm -hmm. So they're working with a budget of $34 million for this movie. What? I can justify that being one. It's 1979. We're 10 years down the road. And furthermore, Roger Moore is commanding more money now. You've got other actual stars in this movie being able to command more money. True. And you're shooting a lot of on-location stuff. Okay. Which you weren't doing in 2001. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really where the budget comes in. And I think the special effects were done more on the cheap for this. It explains why they would have done space because they knew it was going to cost them more money and they had all this money. I get that because it's true. You're trying to do space. It's going to cost you more money. But they didn't balance their budget well. Well, do they ever? Maybe. At one point, Albert Broccoli complained that the title sequence that Maurice Bender created cost more than the entire budget of Dr. No. Like, the entire film. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, talk about, like, making your budget work for you. That's Dr. No. (sighs) Well, you know what? U.S. gross was $70,308,000. World gross was $140,000,000. This was the highest grossing Bond film until Goldeneye. So it made a ton of money and got a ton of interest. No, I believe that. Because the last one was great. The last one was incredible. Yeah, and so if the last one is great, then you're willing to go see the next one. That's how that usually works. Well, I also have to think about in 1979, you know, we had Star Wars, but that was kind of it. It's a completely different thing, though. That's not going to have necessarily the same audience. Well, that's interesting that you you point that out. Mm. Our writer is Christopher Wood. No Richard Maybaum this time. No, Okay. Now, Wood had been a co-writer on the script for The Spy Who Loved Me. Okay. But this movie, we mentioned at the end of the credits of The Spy Who Loved Me, it said James Bond will return in For for Your your Eyes eyes Only. Now, why did they choose to instead adapt Moonraker, an actual James Bond novel Mm -hmm. from the 1950s, Mm -hmm. instead? 
Was it because of the lawsuit? It was Star Wars. Star Wars was so big that they decided to go for space. I get it. Space is hot right now. Let's do space. So, I mean, like many decisions throughout the filming production process, it came down to Albert Broccoli or someone in his orbit saying, I think this might be a good idea. Let's put a bunch of money in that pit. He needed the salt. He needed the salt. (laughs) Except Salty was worse. Salty was worse with the money. You remember the elephant story? I do remember the elephant story. But when you have nothing to counterbalance your behavior, sometimes just serving as what not to do is important. I don't need salt. I need like pepper. I need a pepper to join on this thing to counterbalance the broccoli. Is there any cheddar? Maybe. (laughs) Apparently 34 million worth. Seriously. The word Moonraker either means a reference to a moon sail, which is the highest sail on a ship. Okay. Or it's a term from folk stories where smugglers hiding contraband pretended to rake pond water to catch the moon's reflection. Hmm. To try to disguise where they were in the water. Okay, I get that. But at the time of the movie, it's really known as a man of extreme ambition. Okay. So once again, we continue this theme of all the titles seem to always refer to the bad guy. I'm okay with that. Like, that works. Yeah, a little bit. Tom Mankiewicz actually wrote a script for this film that was not used. Okay. And elements from that script would actually be recycled in Octopussy and A View to a Kill. Okay. They had to massively revamp the story from the book. Because it was so dated in in how they conceived space and the idea of using space. Oh, absolutely. So they they completely revamped the entire thing. And finally, you may notice there's quite a few similarities to the last movie we watched. There is a parachute sequence that opens both movies. We have Jaws in both, though that's a little edge case. That's just a different thing. There is an appearance at the pyramids. And Bond drives an amphibious vehicle. Story points wise, the entire thing is about a big gigantic vehicle being stolen. Mm-hmm. A villain kills a female employee for their secrets. And the main villain is trying to start some sort of new master race. Gross. Are we starting to sense some similarities? In fact, they used identical sound effects from the spy who loved me for certain action sequences in this movie. Lazy. There's a whole like pseudo very low key conspiracy theory vibe out there for people uh-huh. that say they literally just remade The Spy Who Loved Me for this and point out all of all the, the things that are exactly the same. same. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why it was so boring. I think that's why. I think halfway through we started being like, we've already seen this before. And it but was... it's subconscious because we're in space. It shouldn't be the same. And it and the spy who loved me was really good. When you're copying the same story beats, people don't always recognize it in the moment, mm-hmm. but they turn off. Mm-hmm. And it's because your brain goes, Well, I've seen this before, so I don't really need to pay attention. Yeah. 
you recognize what you've already watched and you go, oh, I don't care. I don't know that that's true. Nobody has ever been on record saying that. But it's an interesting point. And you could go down a rabbit hole trying to find all that stuff. Our director is Lewis Gilbert. He's returning from The Spy Who Loved Me. Okay. This was a big fucking production. So it was filmed in three continents, four studios in seven different countries. Wow. I mean, when we are in Venice, we are in Venice. We have the Pinewood Studios lots. We're in France, I believe. We've got all the ski scenes. This whole movie was all over Europe. I just want to say, Bond should not be allowed to go skiing. <laughs> it only leads to bad things. You know, that. I guess the other thing is, the skiing stuff just seems so forced at this point, mm-hmm. because they did it once in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And it was so fucking good, other than some of the cut to actors on the flat screens, which you couldn't get past. I mean, it was the 60s. Yeah. We've gotten better at this. But otherwise, that sequence was so outstanding, or all of the sequences that mm-hmm. we have in that movie, that to keep going back to it, it's never quite as good. No. Other not. than, I would say, The Spy Who Loved Me. That sequence is outstanding that at the beginning of the movie. That one's all right. But the rest of them just feel like, you did this really well already. Why are you doing it again? Like, I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. Because of major tax law changes, the main stages that they used were actually in France. Okay. They didn't actually use the brand new 007 stage that they had in Pinewood. And M's entire set, his office, was moved to French studios in order to avoid the tax restrictions. That's stupid. And also more money. It it always comes down to tax dodges for these guys to be perfectly fucking honest. Like no, like I I get it's not so much dodges, but like who's gonna give you better tax incentives to work there? But in a fun note, Venice allowed them to do so many crazy stunts all over that city. Oh, clearly. <laughs> that Albert Broccoli actually made a major donation to the Save Venice Fund. Oh. In order to protect the architecture and canals and all that stuff out there i mean do we have any big notes for the writing directing i mean we know with the writing it's like it looks like they slapped together a bunch of the same plot points but just moved locations it's very lackluster it feels like a movie by committee it feels like everybody got in a room and all had about eight different ideas and they just kind of hedged for a while until they got something pretty mediocre well and then like, Roger Moore's really good at being sarcastic and silly. And I just don't think he got to do that as much this time. They focused a lot on the action yeah. and a lot less on Bond, which has been the strongest points of writing in Roger Moore's time as Bond is the moments that they let him be fun. Yeah. yeah. Even in a movie like Live and Let Die, when he's funny and charming... It's entertaining. Yeah, it really is. So that was kind of disappointing in this one. All right, our cast. Roger Moore as James Bond. He's James Bond. Roger Moore only shoots one person in this entire movie. It's the sniper in the tree at Drax's estate. Over there. Missed Mr. Bond. Did I? 
as you said. Such good sport. And his disgust in that scene was actually very genuine. He hated blood sports and was not fond of guns. I respect this. I know. After this movie came out, he never said he wasn't proud of the movie, but this has been the movie that he has constantly made fun of himself and the plot of the movie over and over and over again. Well, he, that's, that's on brand for Roger Moore. He is. I, I think he's never said, I'm not proud of the work I did. But this movie was fucking dumb. (laughs) You're correct, sir. He did approximately 390 interviews to publicize this movie. Oh, fuck. Uh, That's a long one. Nobody should have to do that for anything. But he very much enjoyed filming in Paris because the hours were much shorter than in England. They did not start shooting until noon, and French law mandated that they shoot no more than eight hours a day. I like it. Because the French had actual labor protections. Calm down, Norma Ray. Roger Moore suffered a kidney stone that almost ended the production at one point. How? He had a kidney stone and didn't know if he was going to be able to get back on set. Oh, jeez, man. Yeah. His face actually got fairly bruised being in the centrifuge mm-hmm. because of the times they had to keep getting the, the force, shot. Yeah. And he claims that the single hardest shot in the film was the zero-G sex scene. Because of how they were positioned on the wires, he could feel the blood running up to his nose and eyes the entire scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would not be comfortable at all. (laughs) Or sexy. All right. Lois Childs as Holly Goodhead. She has a very unfortunate name. (laughs) Dr. Goodhead. And... Just, she's boring. She's just boring. Early on, there was such promise because she was giving right back to James. Yeah, like when he's like, oh, where is the doctor? Where is he? She is right here. Like, it was such a direct call to the last one. It was a huge step forward. Yeah. And, you know, we had Anya who was like, we're spies, we're counterparts, and there's this tete-a-tete. And now it was going to be, not only am I a spy, I'm also a doctor, And I know way more fucking shit than you do, dude. So back off. Yeah. And And it would have been such a great thing for James not to meet his match and his equal, mm -hmm. but to meet a woman better than him and have to reckon with that. Totally. The super low key, but very misogynist James Bond. The horny James Bond. Well, yeah, he was also... I'm, I'm glad that we went from kind of woman hating and violent towards women to absolutely ridiculously horny with james it's quite nice i mean the horny is usually played for funny not in sean connery it's not no exactly but with (laughs) him with him it is and if anybody who could play like the quote-unquote emasculated man well and funny it would have been roger moore oh of course lois childs has been in the way we were together for days 1974's the great gatsby coma death on the nile broadcast news And she was Diane's mom in Say Anything. Oh, yeah. She was also in Dallas, Courage, Sweet Liberty, Creep Show 2, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, and Speed 2 Cruise Control. Love it. She was actually pregnant during the filming of this movie. Oh, wow. So they hid that very well. I would not have suspected that at all. Neither would I. She was actually the original choice for Anya Amasova in The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, okay. But 
she had temporarily retired from acting. She had been in a movie and had gotten actual criticism that basically said she's a terrible actress and she needs to go take lessons. And so she did. She retired temporarily, went and got lessons, and she was seated next to Lewis Gilbert on a flight. And in their conversation, she got the role of Dr. Goodhead. Well, that's to her credit. I mean, she's kind of boring, but i that's not really her fault. She has nothing to latch on to, especially with the kind of actress she is. She is not a super emotional, heavy-handed style of actress. True. She's very natural, and so you need more color on the page for her to be more campy. She's just, she's just not interesting. Yeah, and she, that's not her fault. It's the writing's fault. Well, I think it's just she she's so straight. And as soon as this movie gets into a fucking rocket and takes off to a space station, you've got to elevate your performance somewhere. True. If you've got nothing, if you've got nowhere to go on the page, how do you do that? So I think she's in a rock and a hard place. I think that's fair. One fun note, she had some trouble really feeling the dialogue during the climax where they're shooting down the satellites. Mm -hmm. And the prop department put a little Martian doll right outside the window of the (laughs) cockpit she was in. That's funny. As soon as she saw it, she relaxed and she started nailing the lines. Well, that's good. We get Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax. Michael Lonsdale is actually a very big deal French television and film performer. Okay. But has also been in a ton of American and more popular French movies. He was in Orson Welles' The Trial, Behold a Pale Horse, Is Paris Burning, Stolen Kisses from Truffaut, The Day of the Jackal, The Phantom of Liberty, 1975's Galileo. And then after this, he was in Chariots of Fire, The Name of the Rose, The Remains of the Day, Ronin, and Munich. Oh, wow. He's actually enough of a big deal actor that Ian Fleming's novel described Hugo Drax as a Lonsdale figure. Oh, okay. Grabbing this guy's actually not a bad pick at all. That's cool. One of the main reasons he was cast, along with Corinne Clary, who plays Corinne, and we'll talk about her in Arpons, mm-hmm. was to qualify this as an Anglo-French production for the tax break. Yeah, you had to have a- enough actors from the country. I'm sure that French had that in their coordination now that it's the eu it's not that hard anymore but Mm. you know they're gonna break that apart so and we get some who could have been better okay james mason comes back again oh my he's been considered a lot it's kind of weird they never got him we get louis jordan on the list who would actually be the villain in octopussy and finally there's a gentleman i don't know kind of under the radar Maybe not that well-known a figure, who was also offered the opportunity to sing the title theme for this movie. His name was Frank Sinatra. That would have been amazing. <laughs> to have Frank Sinatra not only sing the song, but then be the bad dude. That would have been kick-ass for Frank Sinatra. I will say this. Frank Sinatra's not a bad actor. No. Given the right script. Correct. He would have been awful in this movie that's true but there are a handful of movies that he's been in manchurian candidate man with the golden arm and suddenly where they are impeccably well written and well filmed movies yes that he is so fucking good in because 
if you give him a good script, he can really absorb a character and show it on screen. No, I believe that. And of course, he's done musicals as well, and he can totally be that broad style of actor. This would have been really bad. And like, honestly, a lot of Bond movies would have been bad for him to do. Oh, I agree. And I think he made the very good decision in not going there. Next, we have Richard Keel as Jaws. Returning. I mean, he's less annoying this time. He's a little funnier. He's more of a cartoon. Well, he's not doing that thing the whole time, so it was a little more enjoyable. There was apparently footage that showed Jaws walking away from the wreckage of the circus tent, but I guess it got lost in the cut. Hmm. That part irked me. I was like, you've made a really intimidating character. Did we have to go full cartoon with him? Yeah. For this movie? I guess they did. Jaws was supposed to transform into Bond's arch nemesis at this point. Like, Mm. he could have become another Blofeld. Lewis Gilbert, though, got influenced by fan mail from children. Oh. Who kept writing in saying they wanted him to be a goodie instead of a buddy. Well, he did get a girlfriend. I know, he gets a girlfriend and he gets a kind of good send-off a little i mean he blows up in space but but he was helping bond so god this movie's not good no it's just it's (laughs) it's it's not good on to our our pawns we have corinne clarie as corinne dufour how is she an arpon though well, one, she was voiced by Nikki Vanderzil, but more importantly, she is infamous from the famous erotic film, The Story of O. I don't know what that is. It's a very classic 70s X-rated film. And also, there is a who could have been better for her, Sylvia Christel, the titular Emmanuel, also auditioned for this role. I don't know who these people are. They are not our pawns for me. Oh, you need to go watch some 70s porn. <laughs> okay. we get the return of bernard lee as m jeffrey keen as minister of defense desmond llewellyn as q lois maxwell as money penny and walter cattell as gogol all Mm -hmm. in this movie okay and finally we do have the second appearance of victor turjanski with his bottle as bond comes out of the canals the i've drank too much dude Uh uh-huh okay and there are cameos from the cast and crew of this film. Okay. That include Albert and Dana Broccoli, Ooh. Ken Adam, mm. and Lewis Gilbert, all at St. Mark's Square during the Venice action sequence. Well, that's fine. Yeah. That's nice. Our song. Uh, it's Moonraker with Shirley Bassey. It's boring with Shirley Bassey. We went from Live and Let Die to kind of meh with Man with a Golden Gun, to very polarizing option with Nobody Does It Better. Mm-hmm. They're uh, all bad. Live and Let Die is not bad. You take that back. It's not. You only live twice. <laughs> that is my standard, and I love it. As part of his deal, Frank Sinatra would have been offered the theme song for this film. Sure, that makes sense. And that song would have been titled Think of Me, written by John Barry and Paul Williams. You may remember from the Muppet movie. That didn't pan out, so then Barry and Hal David of Bacharach and David wrote Moonraker, and Johnny Mathis was originally going to perform it. I mean, the song sucks, so I really don't care who sings it. (laughs) It didn't work. They had a chance meeting with Shirley Bassey at one point, and she said, fine, I'll do it. Which, I mean... Get paid! I will say this, for the song that it is, Shirley Bassey's kind of the best person to perform it. 
We have our gadgets for the film. Okay. The wrist dart gun. Mm-hmm. The Venice lab with the door code theme to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I did like that. The cigarette case safe cracker. I like it. The Seiko watch with remote detonator and charge and fuse in the back of the watch. Sure. The multi-purpose coffin that oh, the that, henchman comes out of. That's important. With the knives on top. That's pretty good. The mini 007 camera. Yes. Cute. The Moonraker laser guns. Sure. The exploding bola balls in Q's office. Oh, okay. Yeah. The poison pen. The perfume flamethrower. <laughs> the notebook with a dart gun. Purse transmitter. Space shuttle with lasers and laser equipped crew. Cloaking device for Drax's space station and nerve gas globes. Yeah, these are all super cool, awesome technology. <laughs> no, I like the gadgets. I really like the dart watch. That's that's cool. I'm not going to lie. The mini camera, it got me. I was like, that is such a tiny camera. Trivia. We have yet another opening parachute jump. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's okay. But it's derivative, and that's why it's annoying. It, it, we've done it too many times now. Except for the close-ups, the entire sequence was shot in freefall. Okay. There were cameras mounted on the helmets of the skydiver, and some shots included are of the cameraman's limbs. So when we're seeing some of that, it's actually the guy taking the pictures. Jake Lombard and BJ Wirth were the skydivers. They wore shoots contained inside of the suits. They were sewn into the back. Okay. So that way they could look like Bond while they were going down. Lombard, with a haircut and a shave, look a lot like Roger Moore. Hmm. So they were able to actually do a lot of the close-ups just using him in the stunt sequence and not necessarily having to put Roger Moore in a background. No, that works. And the pilot was cast because in the studio shots, he looked a lot like B.J. Worth. The fight over the parachutes were actually dummy parachutes that had to be removed from the parachuters before they could actually activate their chutes while they were filming. Mm-hmm. And they removed them up to three times in a single jump. The main and reserve chutes were contained with a breakaway seam. So they literally never had to take the coat off to get the parachute open. It just would pop right out. Mm-hmm. And they had 60 to 70 seconds of filming time before they had to pull the parachutes open. And factoring the time it took to get into position, they only got a few seconds each time they dove. So Hmm. the total two-minute sequence took 88 jumps over five weeks. Wow, that's a lot of jumps. Like, a lot. I think that's the thing about that sequence is that you look at it and because it's derivative, it seems a little boring. But when you really think about it, it's really fucking impressive. <laughs> well, it's cool when you look at how did they accomplish this at this time? Because now we're very jaded by have the GoPros putting on everything. I mean, when we went to Disney World, so many people had a GoPro and like the GoPro attachment for their shoulder so that they could do that for every ride they went on. And that's cool, but we're just so jaded by some of that stuff now. Well, you can shock mount that stuff, and then you can have, like, every single person diving now has a camera. That, that you can even hire a quality camera on everybody so that you can get multiple coverage while you're up there. Yeah. Whereas, you know, then you've got one person with one camera to get all those setups that you need to do that full sequence. Yeah, no, it's a lot harder. It boggles my mind to think that, you know, it's not that long a sequence, but you've got to have that many 
dives in order to get it to look right. The gondola slash hovercraft took five takes to get through. On the first four takes, it became unstable and threw more into the water, ruining his silk suit. Yeah, water and silk are not friends. They only had one final silk suit left. Yep. So they had to get it right on that last one. There were tourists who got footage of each of the failures on camera. And more wound up nicknaming the boat the Bondola. (laughs) That's cute. The Bondola. Also, they were not going that fast. Mm -hmm. The speed limit in the canals in Venice was only five knots. Okay. So they couldn't go any faster than that in the motorboats down there. Mm -hmm. The fight between Bond and Chang was the largest amount of breakaway glass in a single scene. Broccoli requested permission to use the notes from Close Encounters for that lab door. Okay. And Spielberg allowed it. In return, in 1985, Spielberg requested that he could use the 007 theme for Goonies. Broccoli pointed out that there were more than five notes in the Bond music. As a joke. He eventually did allow Spielberg to use it. And, as we've said, and it comes up a little bit each time, Spielberg was in preliminary talks to possibly direct a Bond film, but it never panned out. And then before they could ever get serious, Lucas offered him Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. And that... Changed everything for Steven. <laughs> really did. We did cover Goonies previously on this podcast. It was one of the first movies we did. This movie actually became the focus of a real life adventure. Okay. John Miller, a mercenary, used the film as cover to kidnap great train robbery fugitive Ronnie Biggs. Miller and his team posed as members of the production of Moonraker and offered Biggs a role to lure him onto a yacht. They planned to sail into international waters and then take him to a British Commonwealth country to have him extradited. A member of the press called Biggs's house, thinking he'd already been captured, and ruined the plan. What? Like, what? I want to see that movie. That would be a very interesting, weird movie. (laughs) Like, what? But they were trying to get, like, International bounty hunters. Yeah, I was about to say, like, bounty hunt on him? Yeah. Okay. They were trying to get him out of Italy into a British Commonwealth so that they could get him out of there and back home to England. Huh. Weird. During the cable car stunt, the stuntman slipped and was hanging over a cliff. The crew, including Ken Adam, were terrified, but they were all way back away from the stunt and they could not assist him immediately. Hmm. And the entire thing was almost cut as the Brazilian authorities wanted much more money for Mm. them to be able to film there. By the way, the stuntman lived. He was fine. It was just a scary moment. Does he still have all his limbs? Yes. Okay. This is the first film to use the modern space shuttle. Okay. So it was supposed to coincide with the launch of the space shuttle, Mm -hmm. but that got delayed until 1981. NASA had not concluded the full design of the shuttle carrier Enterprise had completed its landing testing, and Columbia was under construction. But because no actual changes were made, the production design wound up being accurate still. What we see in the film is accurate to the true design of the NASA space shuttle. Nothing changed from how they have it in the movie. All of the Space Center stuff was shot at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Cool. And there was no reference for what the shuttle launch would look like, so they had to improvise it. They put models on bottle rockets and also used signal flares to get the fire. Smoke Trail had 
the smoke trail was created by sprinkling salt out behind the flame of the models. And honestly, the launch looks the, really good. The launch does look pretty cool. I yeah, that was that was neat. The space sequence, as boring as it is, mm-hmm. is also really well done. I'll give them credit on the visual effects it's, for this movie. It's pretty good. To accomplish all of the space sequences, they would rewind the camera after shooting each individual element and then superimpose the next element onto the film stock. So they wound up doing that about 40 times per each space sequence. That's cool. And the destruction of the space station was accomplished by several of the crew members locking themselves in the studio and shooting the model with shotguns. (laughs) Okay. The Concorde that we see in this film is not the one that crashed in 2000, permanently grounding the plane forever. Mm -hmm. But this plane was actually retired, and you can see it at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. While filming in Venice, Pope John Paul I died. And the bells ringing throughout the city were so loud that they had to shut down production for the day. It was impossible to film. They go off forever. I know. There is no car for Bond in this film, though he does drive a small vehicle through caverns. (laughs) You Only Live Twice was the only film also not to feature a car. Hmm. Ken Adam was informed when he started working on the sets that there would be no overtime for the set construction (laughs) because they were in France. Oh, yeah. Ken Adam had never worked on a set without overtime. Yeah. And he was a little freaked out. I would be too. When the crew came in and saw the designs, they all rallied around him and said, we'll work the overtime. And... On Sundays, they actually worked and brought in their families and had, like, picnics and stuff while they built the sets for the movie. Uh... It's a weird thing. I don't know. They they all seem to have bought into this thing. Okay. I appreciate the team spirit can do. We're going to get this done one way or another. Cheerful way. But also, like, rules are rules, and they're so that people don't get taken advantage of. I know. So it's kind of like the, eh, yuck. <laughs> In total, it took 220,000 total hours of construction for the 50 sets for the film. That is a fuck ton of time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. And this film beat the world record for having the most zero-G wires used in a single scene. The space station. Oh, yeah. When the gravity gets turned off. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. All right. It's pretty simple. Our rating is how many... Space shuttles. This movie's not good. I wish it were better. Yeah, it's not very good at all. I want to give it credit for the visual effects. I just do. Mm-hmm. Because I think in retrospect, what they did was impressive for the mm-hmm. time. I'm going to go two. It's not a great movie, but it looks really good. And it's something that you can totally turn on in the background. You just don't need to be paying that close of attention to it. I'm trying to stick with my first instincts, and that's going to be one and a half. Yeah. Because I do like the visual effects, and Bond is still funny, but the story is the same as the last movie, which I really enjoyed. We really liked Spy Who Loved Me, but this is so boring. Mm-hmm. It's so boring, and I love me a good space film. Like, 2001 was less boring than some of this. And that's sad. <laughs> that's just sad. Come on. Like... That's saying something. All right. Well, next up, we are getting back to basics with Bond. 
basics with Bond. With for your eyes only. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.